As Phil said, we are finishing up our series in the book of Ruth. First time I've ever preached from Ruth, so I wanted to share this story when I was in seminary at Trinity. When I took Hebrew class, we, we did translation in the book of Ruth. And uh, we only did the first two chapters. For every, every verse, we had to translate it clause by clause. We had to um, explain how the verbs were working. We had to give like, all these grammatical comments on it. We had to explain variations in other manuscripts, give like a commentary on it, talk about the structure of it, compare it to four other translations, and at the end, retranslate it, explaining if and why we changed anything from our initial. So my chapter one of Ruth, I think, has 23, 22 verses, 23, I think. And my notes were 79 pages. And the professor gave me a D plus. And I was like, what's the deal? And he said, you did the minimum. And uh, I was never somebody who was obsessed with, with grades. I think that might have been the only time I ever cried over a grade. We did uh, chapter two, my notes were 99 pages, and they got a B minus. So. But, but yeah, we only did the first two chapters, so just, I don't really know what happened, though. I do, I do, but would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for, for books like Ruth, and we thank you for your word, because it is your word, and you are true, Lord, and you have spoken. Father, I thank you for this book because we see your hand of providence throughout your people and throughout history, Lord, and that is true today as well. Father, you know each one of us. You know the hairs on our head, Lord, and we thank you that you are a loving God, a personal God. Lord, may you bless our time this morning as we study in your word. May we all faithfully understand what this text says and be edified and encouraged by that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ruth is a series of scenes in the four chapters, but all of the scenes fit together into an overarching story. And so I think as we begin this morning, it would be helpful to, to get a sense of the, the full story of the book of Ruth. Uh, Chain Links is the title, by the way. The book of Ruth begins by talking about a family. Let me get the clicker going. Um, Elimelech and his wife Naomi are Israelites and they move from Israel to the land of Moab outside the promised land and with them there are two sons Kilion and Malon shortly after they get to Moab Elimelech dies his two sons each marry Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah and ten years later the two sons, Malon and Kilion, both also die. So you have three widows. A difficult circumstance to find yourself in in any time and place and culture, but especially challenging in the ancient world. It's not like these ladies had life insurance policies. It wasn't like they could have gone back to school or gone out and found a really good job. They were destitute. Without men in their family... And seemingly without hope. And so Naomi resolves to return back to Israel, feeling like prospects will be, will be better for her there. She tells her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. And since they're still young, feels like they can still find husbands. 
Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. She says, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. The daughters offer to return with her. Naomi says, are you guys crazy? Stay here. You have family here. You can have a life here. Orpah says, that's a pretty good point, and she stays. But Ruth remains. Chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And so they returned to Bethlehem. Chapter 2, a man named Boaz enters the scene, and he's a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. Boaz owns land, and there is an Old Testament command where people, poor people in Israel, could glean produce from the land for their survival. And given the difficult circumstances in which Naomi and Ruth found themselves, they decided to utilize that opportunity. Boaz speaks for the first time in chapter 2, verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. His godliness is established from the beginning. He takes notice of Ruth, sees her hard at work in the fields, and Boaz shows compassion towards Ruth. He's heard about her story, how she lost her husband, and how she came with Naomi to Israel, leaving everything behind. With what was required of Boaz as a landowner, He went above and beyond the Old Testament requirements in his generosity he showed towards Ruth and Naomi. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, The Lord, and and he also asks for blessing for Ruth when he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We see the wonderful kindness of Boaz towards Ruth and her mother in law. One of the greatest needs we have is food, and Boaz is here taking care of that. Naomi hears about all of this. She's not with Ruth in the fields, but she hears about all of this. And she mentions that Boaz is a close relative of Elimelech. That fact is significant because in this time and culture, the Old Testament had provisions for when a man died without an heir. That his male relative, who was next of kin, had an opportunity to marry the widow of the deceased and have a child for the deceased. Now, that's certainly an entirely foreign concept to our culture today. In the ancient world, specifically in Israel, part of the significance of this is that it was tied to land rights within God's promised land. And so it was very important for a male to have an offspring to inherit the land. Deuteronomy chapter 25 discusses this Old Testament law for a male relative who we call a kinsman redeemer. That idea is one of the major themes of the book of Ruth. And it points ultimately to Jesus. Jesus is the greater kinsman redeemer for humanity. Because of sin, we were without hope, but Jesus redeemed us. He bore the cost of, of sin himself so that we could be redeemed. We had nothing, we had no hope, But Jesus came and rescued us. 
And as I said, we see in this passage that Boaz is, in fact, a male relative of Elimelech and his son Malon, the deceased husbands. In chapter 3, Naomi hatches a plan to pursue Boaz. She tells Ruth to go to the salon, get her nails done, buy a new dress at her burgers, get all dolled up, and see if, you know, you can get Boaz's attention. Ruth goes to Boaz and basically proposes to him. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 9, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz responds favorably. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So what he's saying is, I know you, I like you, you're well thought of. I would do it. However, there's a technicality because there's a closer living male relative to Elimelech and Malon, and he has dibs, and dibs are sacred. But if he isn't willing to go through with it, then I will marry you. So with that long introduction, we come to chapter 4. Boaz has made his intentions known that he still has to follow protocol. And so he finds the closer male relative at the beginning of chapter 4. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Boaz brings witnesses. That's not specifically spelled out as a command in the Old Testament in this situation, but Boaz is probably following some sort of established custom they had. Verse 2, And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Verse 3, Boaz begins to explain the situation to the eligible redeemer. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So basically what Boaz is saying is, You've got dibs. Do you want this? It's up to you. I'm interested if you're not. Now, to this point in the book of Ruth, we know Boaz. We like Boaz. We've seen the relationship of Ruth and Boaz. And the other relative says at the end of verse 4, I will redeem it. That's not what we want. But then... Boaz throws in the other part of the deal in verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. It's a package deal. Ruth comes with the land. You can't just have the land. You have to also marry Ruth, which means you have to buy the land, support Ruth, and your firstborn won't even be your firstborn. It'll be Malon's firstborn. Because that's how the law of the kinsman redeemer works. Verse 6. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, the relative was not absolutely bound to marry the widow. I think it's important not to judge this guy too harshly. We don't know the whole story. Um, Perhaps part of it might have been he didn't think he'd actually be able to provide and was being responsible. In any event, that opens the door for Boaz to marry Ruth. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attaining, of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. We don't know exactly why that is part of the custom. Again, that specific aspect of it isn't explicitly commanded. Uh, once again, it's probably some sort of Israelite custom that had developed and somehow become part of tradition. Boaz addresses the elders who have come with him in verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. The elders affirm Boaz's intentions. Verse 11, so do the rest of the onlookers. And they also call for divine blessing on Ruth and Boaz. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. In this blessing, the people ask, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, referring to Ruth, like Rachel and Leah. That's a reference to Jacob's wives who bore the sons that were the 12 tribes of Israel. So what they're asking for is faithfulness and fruitfulness for Boaz and Ruth's new family. This perhaps was a common blessing. Then the people reference a second person in Israel. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That's an especially appropriate situation because Judah had acted as a kinsman redeemer for Tamar when his sons... Both died, her husband and his brother, uh, in Genesis chapter 38. Verse 13, we come to the wedding. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The widow finds a husband. The family that experienced death has new life. Naomi had left Moab and said she was empty. But God has blessed this family. Verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him his name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's a little bit confusing. It's Ruth and Boaz's son. David is mentioned at the end of verse 17. Again, this family that has experienced so much loss and tragedy has new life. And here at the, at the end, it says, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's quite a twist in the story. This little family. We don't see anything truly extraordinary about them. Ruth is a godly woman. Boaz is a godly man who agrees to marry her. But their great-grandson is King David. The book of Ruth ends with a more expanded genealogy, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. God blessed the broken road. The fact that they're related to David is the climax of the book of Ruth. Boaz and Ruth are links in the chain that leads to David, but more importantly, which leads to Jesus. Without that story, I truly believe Ruth would not even be in the Bible. I mentioned earlier that the kinsman redeemer is a significant theme in the book of Ruth. Well, the ultimate kinsman redeemer comes from this family. As I've considered the book of Ruth this week, I've looked at Ruth in light of the connection to David and Jesus. We see the providence of God in the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth and Boaz is a, a pretty small purview compared to what other books of the Bible cover. Think about the books of the Bible that come before Ruth. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Huge, expansive themes. Major events for God and God's people. Major events for Israel. Major movements of the Israelites. God's law given to Israel. Dynamic leaders like Abraham and Moses and Joshua. We see God directly speaking to leaders in the early books of the Bible. We see God speaking to prophets in the prophetic books. Jesus is God on earth in the Gospels, an entire ministry that fulfills the scripture. God doesn't speak in the book of Ruth, but God is very much at work. God doesn't speak, but the loving kindness, the mercy and grace that God bestows on humanity, we see in Ruth showing that to Naomi Boaz showing that to Ruth. The hand of God is at work in human history in the book of Ruth. The genealogy shows us that. These people got to be links in the chain that led to Christ. Think about that. Consider the events that transpire in the book of Ruth. A famine leads to Elimelech's family leaving Israel from Moab. But when they left Israel... They were also walking away from God's promised land. They left that. However, without that, Ruth wouldn't have been part of the story. Because it was in Moab where they meet her. The providence of God. Their husbands all die. 
Ruth decides to leave her home to go to a new place, taking a huge risk in the process. We see her loyalty and love for Naomi. This enables them to meet Boaz. If the first kinsman redeemer had decided to marry Ruth, the whole story changes. If Ruth and Malon had an heir, there would have been no need for a kinsman redeemer, and the whole story changes. But God uses all of that for bringing a baby into the world who would help lead the world to Christ. The things that happen in your life matter. And the things that you do with your life matter. Really, that's the main idea of this passage. And the reason why the things that happen in your life matter is because God is sovereign over his creation. Nothing in your life is meaningless. And the reason why the things that you do in your life matters is because God uses that. Ruth stayed loyal to Naomi. She didn't have to do that. But God used that. Boaz redeemed Ruth. He didn't have to do that. But God used that. In the book of Ruth, through famine, through death, situations where it seemed that nothing good could come of it, God was working. God was working things to his plan. We see that throughout the Bible. The story of Joseph, a man betrayed by his brothers and thrown into slavery by that betrayal. Joseph goes to Egypt through his character and faithful service. He gets a position of power in Egypt. And a terrible famine comes upon that region. Joseph is in a position to save his family, to save the brothers who betrayed him. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And that story also matters because in saving his family, he saved his brother Judah, another link in the chain of Christ. The hand of God at work. We see that in the missionary Paul, in Acts chapter 16, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and wanted to go to Asia. He was prevented. Wanted to go to Turkey. He was prevented. So Paul instead went to Philippi. And that was the first time that the gospel had been preached on the European continent. Through setbacks and frustrations, God was working. We see that throughout the Bible, but it's also true in our own lives. The book of Ruth is just a little family. And the only reason why they really matter, why we're even talking about them, is because of what God did through them. Yet that is the only thing that gives anyone's life true meaning. Knowing God, serving God, and having a life devoted to God. What's happening in your life right now? Just because you're not sensing a lot, of, a lot from God doesn't mean that God isn't working. Ruth lived during the time of the judges in Israel, before the monarchy. It was a very dark time in Israel, yet God was working. He was working on the life of his family, of this family, and was working things for his people. God is working in your life. Ruth shows us that it's not only the great moments and victories where God is at work. It's also the times of greatest loss and despair. The experiences in our life that can make us either bitter or better. That can define us or defeat us. They can teach us 
make us more caring people. They can strip away our layers of self-centeredness and pride, make us more selfless, more loving. God grows us. He prepares us and he uses us for his purposes in the events of our lives. Sometimes the struggles we face aren't even about us. But it's God using us for his purposes. What's going on in your life right now? Maybe you're doing something at work and you just don't like it. Maybe you're retired and you feel like you've, you're in a season where you don't feel the same sense of meaning in what you're doing that you used to. Maybe you're struggling with something and you're so frustrated and it feels like it's keeping you from, from much more important things. God is working. In all situations, God is working. Sometimes it can take months or years to see the purpose that God is using. Sometimes we never truly know on this side of eternity. But there are always bigger purposes that we'll never know in our lifetimes. Think about your life, where you've been, where you are. God is working. With my wife Carrie and all of her family living in the South, her parents shocked everyone last year when they told Carrie and her sisters that they would be moving from Alabama to St. Louis. Carrie had just gotten out of a relationship at the time. Had she not broken up when she did, she was actually looking at moving closer to this other person, this lesser person. But with nothing keeping Carrie in Atlanta, her parents asked her if she wanted to move to St. Louis. Without her parents moving to St. Louis, Carrie would have never looked at moving up north. God is working. The heartbreak of a breakup, the stress of parents moving, changing the dynamics within a family, all living close together. A tough time. But if one piece of that story changes, Carrie and I would have never met. The things in your life matter. Because when we met online, I included places like St. Louis in my search, but I wasn't looking across the country. Never would have met. It's like a fairy tale. <laughs> the things in your life matter, and the things you do in your life matter. It's interesting to me that the thing that is most noteworthy about Ruth and Boaz, the fact that they're in the line that leads to David and leads to Christ, is something that they didn't even know about in their lifetime. Because it's not just about what God is doing for us, but it's what God is doing for his purposes for humanity and for the world. And we don't always know the long-term results of our lives and the choices that we make. Joseph Tucker was a missionary in Africa in the 1960s. For years, he had tried to reach the Mangbedo tribe with the gospel, but tribal leaders had never allowed it. The tribe had their own gods. In November of 1964, rebels of another tribe took Tucker and a group of missionaries from the U.S. and Europe hostage. Tucker was beaten to death. His body was thrown into the Bamakande River in present-day Congo. One of his main objectives in ministry had never been reached, as Tucker would never get the chance to witness 
to the Mugmeadow tribe. While, while Tucker never had the opportunity to witness to this group, he did lead a nearby general to faith. Things that can't possibly seem to be part of the plan still work to God's plan because God is sovereign and God is good. Nothing sends God back to the drawing board. The Bamakande River, where Tucker's remains had been discarded, flowed through the heart of the Mungbeto territory. As I said, a couple months before he died, he, he led a local general to faith. After Tucker's death, the Mungbeto tribe was in a civil war and appealed to the government for help. One of the leaders whom the government sent to the Mungbeto was this general who Tucker had led to faith. As a recent convert to Christianity, the general tried to witness his faith to, to the Mungbeto because he believed the gospel was the only true way to peace among these groups. But as it was with Tucker, the general was also met with resistance. The tribe had a generations-old tradition, which the general eventually heard about. If a man's blood flowed in the Bamakande River, you had to listen to his message. With that knowledge, the soldiers summoned the elders of the tribe to tell the story of Joseph Tucker, the life he lived, the death he died, and most importantly, the God he served. And the tribe who was told, constantly, who had told Joseph Tucker no, finally heard the gospel. His death might have seemed like the end of the line, but it was because of his death that the people were in a position to hear the gospel and be pointed to life through Christ. Since that time, hundreds of thousands of Mbeto have come to faith in Jesus, and dozens of churches have been planted among them. Of the 1.6 million Mungbeto today living in the Congo and Uganda, the Joshua Project estimates that more than 96% of them are Christians. What happens in your life matters, and the choices you make matter. You might not always see the fruit, but we must still be faithful. I think of my aunt, Ruth. She's actually my great aunt, and she is a great aunt. My grandfather's older sister, dedicated her whole life to serving the Lord, worked for the Salvation Army for more than 40 years. When I was a kid, she lived in New York. And whenever I talked to her on the phone, she would always end the conversation by saying, I love you and I'm praying for you. As someone who grew up not going to church, she was the only person who had ever told me that. Aunt Ruth is still with us today, but she's battling pretty progressive dementia. She never had the chance to see me become a Christian, go to seminary, preach a sermon. I know she'd be delighted by all of those things. But we don't always get to see the next chapter of the book on this side of eternity. We don't always get to know the impact that we have on other people. We don't always need to know. What matters is that we be faithful. I think of the prophet Jeremiah in the Bible. Some of the Old Testament prophets had pretty short careers. The period in which they were actually prophesying could be pretty short. But for Jeremiah, it was pretty much his entire life, called as a young man. And yeah, that, that persisted throughout his life. He was a prophet. And in all of that, Jeremiah only converted one person. It'd be easy to look at that by any earthly standard and think he failed. 
but we don't control the fruit that our faithfulness produces. All we control is our faithfulness. The things that happen in your life matter, and the things you do in your life matter. Because God gives meaning, and God is working throughout history to achieve his purposes. The Old Testament should clearly show us that. God is working through families and through the nations of the world to bring about his purposes. God is doing that today. God works through a fallen world to bring about his purposes. As Romans 8.28 says, and it is true, God does work all things together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purposes. We see that in the book of Ruth. We see that in the gospel. That God used the worst human sin and wickedness to bring Jesus to the cross. But all of that still worked according to God's plan. Because through that, through that sin and wickedness Mm -hmm. and death, God brought life to a humanity who didn't deserve it. Because God is good. And so may we have a perspective, an eternal perspective, on the things that we face and the things that we have experienced in our lives. That God has worked through them and he's working today. And with that knowledge, may we live lives like Ruth and Boaz, humbly serving the Lord, living for God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your gospel. Lord, that is the only message that gives life to the dead. We thank you, Lord, that you are a loving God. And because we know you love us, may we show love to others. In Jesus' name, amen.